Good morning and welcome to the Berean Post devotional podcast, where we take a deep dive into the scriptures to find new insights and practical application for our modern lives. I'm your host, Duane, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have you with us today. Each day we'll explore a different passage from the Bible, unpacking its meaning and exploring how it can guide our lives for today. So grab your Bible, your favorite drink, and get ready for an exciting journey of discovery. And if you want to stay up to date on all of our latest podcasts and blogs, be sure to check out brilliantpost.ca. Also, join our Facebook group where we call ourselves Bright Future Bible Freaks, and we have a lot of fun there together. But right now, we're going to get started and jump right into today's devotional. Good morning, and welcome to another episode of the Brian Post uh, devotional podcast. For those of you that have been following along, you know that we are going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to take a look at verses, um, chapters 5, verses um, 3 to 5. And although we won't be able to deal with the whole passage today, we're going to take a look at part of it. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into the text. Paul writes, For I indeed was absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the, name of, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Now these verses are interesting because they discuss spiritual ideas using special language and have possible that have um, and have possible meanings for how the early church uh, handled discipline and you know the question of uh, being saved. The first part um, discusses Paul being absent in body but present in spirit. So does this mean that even though he wasn't physically there, he believed that his spirit still was? Well, this raises the question about what exactly that means. How did Paul have a spiritual presence while not being present. How could he be there when the church judged someone for discipline? The second part suggests that Paul had already judged as if he were in person. This makes us wonder how they understood and practiced spiritual judgment in the early church community. And we admit this is one of those passages that's caused us great perplexity over the years. So, absent in body but present in spirit. What did Paul mean by absent in body but present in spirit? It takes no effort to determine what absent in body means. It, in this context, and indeed we can assume that it that he means that he simply was physically not present. But what did he mean by present in spirit? So we've consulted a few commentaries, and Barnes' comments expressed on this passage we find pretty acceptable. This is what he says present in spirit. My heart is with you. My feelings are with you. I have a deep and tender um, interest in the case, and I judge as if I were personally present. So he goes on to say that many many suppose that Paul, by this, refers to a power which was given to the apostles through a, um, though at a distance, to be able to discern the real circumstances of a case by a gift of the Holy Spirit. Barnes goes on to say, but the phrase does not demand this interpretation. 
Paul meant probably that though he was absent, yet his mind and attention had been given to the subject, he felt as deeply as though he were present and would act in the same way. He had in some way been fully apprised of all the circumstances of the case, and he felt it to be his duty to express his views on the subject. And again, that's taken from Barnes' commentary, his notes on the New Testament, 1 Corinthians. So what Barnes is saying here for us lay people is that what Paul means by being present in spirit is that even though he was not physically there with them, his heart, his feelings were connected. So in that sense, it was like he was there with them, agreeing with their arguments, just as though he were present in person. Barn makes the point that others think that Paul's statement refers to a unique ability given to the apostles by the Spirit to understand things from a distance, and perhaps this is the case. But it doesn't have to mean that. Paul could likely mean that even though he was far away, he had thought a lot about this matter, and all the information he needed to make um, a sound judgment, that he had all this information that he needed to make a sound judgment, and even though he was not physically present with them, he's made his judgment. Uh, he goes on to say, when you are gathered together along with my spirit. So the passage discussed the significance of gathering in the name of the Lord Jesus for the Christian community. It, it emphasizes the importance of coming together to make decisions based on Jesus' teachings. Additionally, the text addresses the challenging topic of church discipline, which, of course, many people today may avoid or prefer not to discuss. But to understand the context better, Paul had heard a report about a man in the church involved with in an inappropriate relationship rather, with his father's wife. Paul considers this sin uncommon and abhorrent even among pagans and Gentiles. So he urges the community to take asset, action rather, and pass judgment on this serious matter. And today it's easy for a church or a church leader to be labeled as judgmental or unloving. Trust us. These labels may even extend to different churches or even church organizations. However, it's essential to recognize that church leaders' responsibilities outlined in Scripture. Elders, pastors, and bishops are instructed to correct, teach, and rebuke. For instance, 1 Timothy 5, 19-20, in dealing with accusations against elders, Paul advises that accusations should be received only on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And of course, this is in keeping with what Jesus said. Those who persist in sin, Paul says, are to be rebuked publicly. In Galatians, Paul, in this passage, recounts an incident with Peter and rebukes him for his hypocrisy in withdrawing from Gentile believers. And in Titus chapter 1, uh, 10, to, 10 to 14, Paul warns Titus about rebellious people in the church and instructs him to rebuke them and to sharply correct their behavior. And all of these things require judgment. The famous phrase, the Bible says not to judge, is not only false, because do not judge is not the categorical or exhaustive teaching on what the Bible says about judgment. It's also an uninformed statement. The Bible contains, contains numerous passages that call for exercising judgment, except for determining someone's eternal state. 
both Christians, I mean, sorry, both individual Christians and the church are meant to exercise judgment. And this situation, a man sleeping with his father's wife, is such an instance where this is totally appropriate. <clears throat> but wait, one might say, what about Jesus? What about love, tolerance, acceptance, forgiveness, and grace? And one may passionately argue that we are called to be like Jesus, not Paul. We hear the mantra often shouted today, Jesus said, do not judge. Well, let us examine then what Jesus taught about judgment and church discipline. The facts will reveal that Jesus made many judgment, judgments and rebuked various individuals many times. And here's a list of just some of the notable ones. Judas Iscariot. Jesus identified him as being the one who betrayed him and in fact called him a son of perdition, lawless. Peter was rebuked by Peter for trying to deter him from the path of the cross. And in fact, Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. The Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus often criticized and rebuked the religious leaders for their hypocrisy and legalism. He called them whitewashed sepulchers. The disciples, Jesus occasionally abuked his own disciples for their lack of faith or understanding. He said, ye have little faith, requiring, again, a judgment. Then, of course, there's the money changers and merchants in the temple. Jesus drove them out and overturned their tables, rebuking them for turning the temple into a den of robbers. And finally, you have Thomas. After the resurrection, Jesus gently rebukes Thomas for his doubts and encourages him to believe. Now, one may argue, though, that Jesus never advocated kicking anyone out of the church. Now, while we would take exception to the phrase kicking someone out of the church, Jesus does, in fact, address the issue of excommunication, for, for lack of better terms. Jesus gives us clear guidelines on how correction within the church should occur. He says, in Matthew 18, 15-17, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained a brother. But if he will not hear you, take two, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In Matthew 18, 15-17, Jesus gives a basic framework for resolving conflicts and addressing wrongdoing within the Christian community. He suggests that if someone in the church sins against you, you should first talk to that person privately to address the issue. If that person doesn't resolve the matter, then involve one or two more witnesses. If the person refuses to listen, it should be brought before the church. If they still refuse to repent, they are to be treated as a Gentile or tax collector, which could imply a form of excommunication or separation from the community. Notice the point being that is if they refuse to repent. Whether it be a sin against you, God, or the community, the issue according to Jesus is the issue of the refusal to repent. Okay, well let's wrap this up. Both Jesus and Paul addressed the important topic of church discipline in their teachings found in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 here. While their teachings share common principles, they also 
offer distinct perspectives. In Matthew 18, Jesus emphasized the process of private confrontation first, involving witnesses and then the church community if needed. The focus is on seeking reconciliation and restoration through loving correction with the ultimate goal of being repentance and the healing of the relationship within the church. On the other hand, in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, Paul addresses the specific case of severe immorality within the Corinthian church. He takes a more direct and urgent approach, calling for the person involved to be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh to save their spirit in the day of the Lord. Paul's teachings highlight the seriousness of unrepented sin and the need for decisive action to protect the community's spiritual health. Now, while both these teachings acknowledge the role of judgment and discipline within the church, Jesus Jesus emphasizes restoration and love-driven correction. In contrast, Paul focuses on safeguarding the community by taking firm action against unrepented sin. Their teachings provide a comprehensive view of church discipline, combining compassion and accountability to foster a healthy and spiritually mature Christian community. (laughs) We'll have to deal with the very provocative statement made by Paul, deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of his flesh for our next episode. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of the Brian Post Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion and it's brought you some encouragement and insight. Hey, if you want to stay up to date with all of our latest blogs, posts, and podcast episodes, be sure to visit brianpost.ca and subscribe. Don't forget to share our website with your friends who might need some inspiration or motivation. You can also join our community of bright future Bible freaks on Facebook. Until next time, may peace and blessings abound in your home. Thank you.